Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 27, verses 45 to 53, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Death of Jesus. Whenever we speak of the death of Jesus, please know that we're standing on holy ground. You know, there's no need in a study like this for me to think of an opening illustration because, you see, nothing needs to be said but to recount the enormity of this moment. So let's read our text, Matthew 27, 45 to 50. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The sixth hour is roughly equivalent to our 12 o'clock noon. Jesus was crucified in the morning, somewhere around nine, and by the time we read this passage, we've already been hanging on the cross for three hours. And during those three hours, a great deal has already occurred. The soldiers have nailed him to the cross and raised the cross above the ground. The bystanders have been hurling insults at him. The chief priests had poured out their contempt on him. Even the two robbers had hurled insults, although, as as Luke tells the story, one of those men eventually thought about what he had done and repented and looked to Jesus for eternal life. Up to now, from the other three gospel accounts, we learn that Jesus has uttered three sayings. As he was being nailed to the cross, he had prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then as one of the thief repents, Jesus says to him, This day you will be with me in paradise. And as John is the only one left remaining at the cross, he hears Jesus speaking to his mother, Mary, who is also there to the end. And he says to Mary, behold your son, and then to John, behold your mother. Matthew mentions none of these things. He simply takes us past the first three hours and then takes us to the next three hours until the sixth hour. So it's now noon, and then suddenly there is darkness over the land. The darkness lasted from noon until three in the afternoon. What's the cause of the darkness? We know that it could not have been a solar eclipse because Passover was based on the lunar calendar and Passover always occurs during a full moon. And and furthermore, no eclipse lasts for three hours. So we have to think this is a miraculous event. And what's fascinating to me is that there is evidence of this event from other ancient sources. And one comes from an early Christian leader, a man named Tertullian, a man who lived from AD 155 to 220. And we have one of his letters in which he's debating with a pagan adversary. And in the letter, he mentions the three hours of darkness while Jesus was on the cross. And then he adds these words, which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in the archives to this day. Now, we don't know which of those archives he was referring to, but the fact that Tertullian cites them, and he does so to a pagan, with the knowledge that the pagan man in question is quite aware that the darkness is indeed a historical fact, that's interesting, don't you think? 
And indeed, Origen, another early Christian scholar who was a contemporary of Tertullian, also mentions the same thing. Origen speaks of the Roman historian, a man by the name of Phlegon, who also mentioned that event. Clearly, while there was still a living memory of Jesus and the events surrounding his death, the darkness of which Matthew speaks must have been known in pagan circles, and it was a recorded historical event. So how widely did this phenomenon happen so that, you know, Roman historians are aware of it? And the answer is we simply don't know. I mean, one possible translation of the term land, as our text says it, darkness was over the land. Other translations use the word earth. That is, darkness was over the earth. But most scholars think that that's not what Matthew intended here. Besides, if darkness was over the earth, you might think that there would be historical records of this all over the earth. And there aren't. And I think the natural way to read this text is that darkness was over the area around where Jesus was crucified. Well, how far, we simply can't answer that. But given that it happened, we still have not answered why it happened. And here I think Matthew does give us the answer. At the ninth hour, near the end of this appalling darkness, Jesus cries out from the cross. He says, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So consider then the period of darkness is the time when Jesus is forsaken by God. And furthermore, darkness is often a symbol of judgment in the Bible. So for instance, Joel 2.31 says that before the day of the Lord arrives, the sun will be turned to darkness. That is, it's a precursor to God judging the earth. And Amos reiterates that. Amos 5.18 says that the day of the Lord, or the time of judgment, will be darkness and not light. And other prophets speak using the same language. So if that's right, that darkness speaks of God's wrath, his judgment, his condemnation. But the wrath of God fell not on the sons and daughters of Adam, but it fell on the Son of God. Jesus became in those hours a wrath-bearing sacrifice, now suffering fully under the offended righteousness of a holy and just God. It was William Hendrickson who said, Hell came to Calvary that day. You know, Jesus in those hours suffered as no man in history had ever suffered before. It's not possible for the limitations of human language to describe fully the sufferings of our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, speaking of God, it says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. And Romans 3.25 says that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation, that is, as an offering, a bloody sacrifice, one that bears the wrath of God for human sin. And 1 John 2.2 affirms that. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. And Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse. All the curses written about in the law of God, the just retribution for defying God, were laid on Jesus. Isaiah 53.4 and 5 says he was smitten by God. That is, he was struck by God the Father. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then verse 6 of that same chapter says that Yahweh laid on the Son the iniquity, the God-defying sin of all of us. Indeed, the punishment of damnation fell onto the Son. Listen to Habakkuk 1 verse 13 in its description of the holy God. It says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is not tolerant of evil. 
The cross demonstrates God's justice and his unwillingness to simply let evil pass by. The land became dark because this was the hour of justice, the hour of judgment, the hour of the righteous wrath of the Father. And in the darkness and in a suffering that cannot be described, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So consider that Jesus had spoken about his relationship to the Father in the past. You might remember what Jesus had said to his disciples while he was discussing matters in the upper room just before his arrest. John 16, verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Or you might consider Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Up to this point, Jesus had never known a moment when the smile of the Father was not directed towards him. The proper words to describe their relationship is the term glory. The Son reveled in the excellence and the supreme worth of the Father, and the Father reveled in the excellence and the supreme worth of the Son. But now for the first time, the wrath of the Father was poured out onto the Son, and the heart of the Son suffered terribly under it. And as he hangs on the cross and cries out, Jesus is doing more than simply crying out his own words. He is quoting scripture, Psalm 22, 1-2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. You know, indeed, think how eerily Psalm 22 depicts the agony of Jesus on the cross. Verses 14 to 18, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a common concern and a very old obstacle. The reasons for our caution and reticence are varied. We don't want to face a negative response, or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It's not about an evangelism method. It speaks to our motives and our fears. It it addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. And please consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month. Jesus cries out to God and bystanders hear it. They hear him call out, Eli, Eli, which is Hebrew and Aramaic, and it sounds very much like Elijah, 
And so they must have thought that Elijah was going to respond. Matthew, however, tells us that after this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He tells us that Jesus didn't slowly and gradually lose consciousness and die. It seems to indicate the truth that Jesus had spoken of earlier. John 10, 17 to 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now listen, that seems to indicate that Jesus died after he had made a full and complete sacrifice for sins in this world. It's only after he had paid the full weight of human sin, it was then that he gave up his spirit. And Matthew doesn't record what Jesus actually said at that moment. But John in John 19.30 says, he cried out, it is finished. Jesus wasn't saying that his life was finished. Rather, he was saying he was finished paying for our sins. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father. He'd come to make full atonement for sin. He'd also prayed not long before this that even though his flesh recoiled from the thought of drinking the cup of the wrath of God, yet nonetheless he had said, not my will but yours be done. And Luke also adds another word from Jesus immediately prior to his death. According to Luke 23 verse 46, Jesus, after he cried out, it is finished, he then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Matthew tells us he gave up his spirit. Now, many people have wondered how Jesus, if he's, you know, really fully God, can die. But here I think the words, he gave up his spirit, are very helpful. Please remember that while Jesus is, of course, fully God, he's also fully man. And yes, men die. And what happens at death? Well, death isn't the cessation of being. You know, I have both spoken and written about that theme in the past. Even while the circumstances that attend the deaths of human beings vary greatly, there's one experience that's common to all human deaths. So let me explain that. When we're born, God doesn't first create a spirit and then slide that spirit into a human body. Rather, to be human is to be both body and spirit. And that means that we're physical, but also it means that we're spirit. So we experience life not just as a biological organism, but rather we also experience life in the image of God. We not only think, but we think morally. We think about right and wrong. We communicate with God. We seek to understand transcendent things. You see, we seek to know not only that we exist, but why we exist. We want to understand our purpose. And all of that, is a part of being in the image of God. We're both body and spirit. It's the nature of humanity. Now, at death, something unnatural occurs to us. The spirit and the body are torn from each other. And by the way, this is why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is so important. When Jesus gave up his spirit, and here I'm speaking about his humanity, his body did cease to function, but his spirit carried on. I don't know how the spirit functions without the body. That's a mystery. But scripture tells us it does. We assume then that at Jesus' death, his spirit immediately went into the presence of the Father. All heaven welcomed him with joy. Matthew doesn't tell us that part of the story. His focus continues to remain on what happened on earth. And what happened on earth, well, that's frankly astonishing. Matthew tells us a number of things. First, you know, God makes a statement about the temple. And I'm reading here from Matthew 27, 51a. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, there can be no doubt that the curtain Matthew's speaking about, that's the curtain that blocks the pathway from the holy place in the temple into the holy of holies. You know, in Jesus' day, the holy of holies no longer housed the Ark of the Covenant. Following the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, the Ark was lost. And there are all manner of theories what happened. Uh, We're not going to get into that. After that, the Holy of Holies was an empty room. But that in itself was significant. There was no statue there, no idol, no picture, just an empty room. I say it's significant because God is spirit and he has no physical form. The Ten Commandments forbids the making of a shape to represent God. God is spirit. But there's something else that's significant about that room, the Holy of Holies. No one was permitted to enter into that room except the high priest and that but once a year. And that signified that the way into the presence of God was blocked or hidden. Our sins prevented us from entering into the Holy Presence. But now the curtain of the Holy of Holies is torn apart. It opens the room wide, and God is saying that now that Christ has died, anyone who trusts in his sacrifice to pay for their sins is invited into the Holy of Holies. We enter now, not like the high priest with the blood of bulls and goats, which have to be offered up every year, but we enter by the precious blood of Christ. We are invited into the holiest place. The door was opened by Christ's sacrifice. Now then, The second significant thing that happened, it's found in Matthew 27, 51b. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. What's the significance of the earthquake? You know, some have suggested that was the outrage of God that the human race would have conspired to murder his only son. But still others quote Luke 19, verse 40. There Jesus is seen riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and his critics, the Pharisees, tell Jesus to rebuke the crowds for proclaiming him as the Messiah. And Jesus responds by saying, if these are silent, the rocks will cry out. And so, well, according to some, this is the rocks crying out. Jesus is the Messiah. That's an interesting theory, but I think there's a better explanation. Remember the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's recorded in Exodus. Israel has come to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain of God. And as God descends down the mountain to give his holy law, the mountain is wrapped in smoke and the ground begins to shake. Indeed, the entire mountain is trembling. And that was so because this was the place of holiness. And that is what God is saying about the cross. This place, Golgotha, is greater than Sinai. This is the ultimate place of holiness. This is the ultimate mountain of God. The death of Jesus signals that this is the holiest place on earth and the holiest place in history. And so the ground shakes. There's something else I think I can add here. The earthquake at the cross is Calvary's answer to Sinai. You know, at Sinai, the law is given. And with the law comes the curse of the law for our disobedience. But at Calvary, The curse of Sinai is removed. This is the earthquake of the merciful God descending. Well, the third event at the death of Christ is even more astonishing. I'm reading Matthew 27, 52 to 53. It says, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. You know, I've often been asked, whatever happened to these raised saints? I mean, did they just disappear one day? I mean, or did they continue to live among the people until, you know, I guess they died of old age? I mean, what happened here? So one question at a time. Why did this happen? 
Well, Matthew doesn't specifically tell us. He only tells us that it happened. But consider the following. This is a real bodily resurrection. It's not just a spirit appearance. Neither are these walking corpses roaming through the streets, kind of like one of those horrible walking dead movies. Rather, we are to understand a bodily resurrection of past saints. And that must mean that they were those men and women who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And their resurrection indicates that now that Christ has been crucified for them and raised, they have seen their hopes fulfilled. They testify that Jesus is who he said he was. And then there's a third matter. Matthew, as I've often said, speaks topically, so he simply jumps ahead and is telling of the story. So what he's telling us now is what happened after the resurrection. These saints, I'm going to argue, have received their resurrection bodies. They're a foretaste of the resurrection of the bodies of all the saints in the future. Now, these saints here, they would never have died again. They're the order of the new thing. They've already happened in them. They have received the resurrection. So I have to assume, therefore, that they were taken up into heaven, perhaps, you know, after the resurrection of Jesus or perhaps even shortly before. Now, imagine the three things that Matthew describes. The veil is torn. The separation between God and people is now removed. All we need is faith in Jesus to be accepted before God. Second, the ground quakes telling us this is the most holy place in history. And third, the resurrection of the saints indicating that here is eternal life. This is why Paul would later say that all human boasting is in vain. All that we can boast about is what God did for us in the cross. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, is the cross really any more significant than any other religious symbol or religious practice or location that's mentioned in the Bible? I think we can say rightly that there is no place, no symbol that is greater than the cross. I mean, there, there is not only our faith, but uh, we know that Christ was crucified from before the foundation of the earth, meaning that God created a world in which the centerpiece of his glory would shine forth the greatest on that one singular place and that one singular moment. There is nothing more significant than the cross, what it means to us as believers, and of the assurance that it gives us for eternal life. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. Last month, our friends at InDoubt launched the InDoubt Show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld and included a segment called Dangerous Doctrines, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The In Doubt Show also recently featured a conversation with a co-creator of one of the most popular current Christian dramatic series, The Chosen. Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture young adults are facing today. The In Doubt Show, 
online at indoubt.ca or at the Indoubt YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so never to miss a new episode.